0: 66, 6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from
1: outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, Dr. Chuck Missler's daily radio program connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler completes his introduction of this exciting study through the whole Bible.
0: There are only two kinds of people that seem to be able to deal comfortably with hyperspaces, spaces of more than three dimensions. And that's mathematicians with special training and small children. If I was going to try to communicate to you aspects of four-dimensional or five-dimensional space, we'd both be having a tough time because outside our direct experience. But we can get some feeling for hyperspaces by going down a dimension. Let's, as three-dimensional people, let's examine a two-dimensional universe with two-dimensional people living in it. I want to introduce you to two friends of mine, Mr. and Mrs. Flatt. I want you to be kind and impassioned here because they have a very serious handicap. Mr. and Mrs. Flat live in a two-dimensional world. We are three-dimensional beings. I want you to notice some of the advantages that we have over Mr. and Mrs. Flat. First of all, we can, no matter where Mr. and Mrs. Flat are within their two-dimensional universe, we can be more intimate with both of them simultaneously than they can be with each other. I could put my finger, in theory, one millionth of an inch away from Mr. Flat and one millionth of an inch from Mrs. Flat, no matter where they are, I can have intimacy with both, independent of their spatial relationships, because I enjoy that extra dimension. Furthermore, if I should thrust my finger through their two-dimensional universe, The only thing that they would be sensitive to, they would see what? Not my finger. They would see a ring. They would see a circle. They would see uh, a two-dimensional representation of this three-dimensional person that's intruded into the universe. If a sphere tumbles through the universe, they would see it as a point that would expand to a circle and then shrink to a point as it disappears. So we begin to realize that the communication of a three-dimensional object to the two-dimensional people has some challenges. How would we go about that? How would you communicate a three-dimensional object to these two-dimensional people? By a two-dimensional projection is one suggestion. So we could try to project, say, a three-dimensional cube to get it into two dimensions to help them understand it. That would be probably less than satisfactory. How would we see a three-dimensional representation of a four-dimensional hypercube? There are such things, and you can go on the internet and see them and play with them, but the more you play with them, the more you realize there's no way you'll understand them from a three-dimensional vantage point without special tools. It's not very useful. Another way you might unravel a three-dimensional object into two dimensions to communicate to Mr. and Mrs. Flat would be to unravel it. We take our three-dimensional cube and flatten it, and that would be one way, but again, it wouldn't be too useful. That's actually been done with a four-dimensional cube. A four-dimensional cube that's unraveled into three dimensions is called a tesseract, or a Hinton cube. There's only one place I've ever encountered it as being useful, and I found it in a very surprising place. Salvador Dali uses a hypercube in his famous painting, Corpus Christi. I was actually astounded to discover that Salvador Dali was that sophisticated mathematically to really understand the implications of a four-dimensional cube in a three-dimensional space but uh, we'll move on here. Oh, before we do, Ephesians. I have to call your attention to Paul's writing in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 17 through 19. Paul says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints What is the breadth, and length, and depth, and height, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God? A familiar passage, but I want to notice something. I want you to notice something. How many dimensions is Paul talking about? With all saints, what is the breadth, and length, and depth, and height? In the Greek, one of those terms is the term for time, by the way. We've got four dimensions here. Four dimensions in the text. I think that's fascinating. I'm not necessarily insisting that, that was Paul's intention, but I'm fascinated the Holy Spirit in guiding him kept him physically on his toes. We find examples of that all through the Scripture in some ways that'll surprise you. When I first I should mention something. When I first visited Israel, I remember a rabbi pointing out to me, he says, we, we really won't understand the text until the Messiah comes, but when the Messiah comes, he will interpret the passages. In fact, He'll interpret the very words, the very letters. In fact, He'll even interpret the spaces between the letters. And When I first heard that, I dismissed that as a colorful exaggeration until I read once again Matthew 5, verse 17 and 18, where Jesus Himself says, Think not that I come to destroy the Torah, or the Law, or the Prophets. I come not to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, One yot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. A yacht or a tittle. See a yot is one of the 22 Hebrew letters that you and I would mistake for an apostrophe. It looks like a little blemish on the paper, just a little mark. A tittle is the little decorative hook on some of the letters. This is a Hebraic way of saying, as we might say, not the crossing of the T or the dotting of an I. When I realize the implication of this, it's a call by the Lord Himself to take the text seriously. Not one yard or one tittle shall pass from the law. I take this as a call to taking the text literally. And uh, now that leads to another area that I want to just touch on because it will give us, we're not going to try to get into too much detail here, but I want you to have a respect for some of these topics that are in themselves perhaps pretty controversial. Are there hidden messages in the Bible? Well, the Bible says there are. In Proverbs 25, 2, it says, "...it is the glory of God to conceal a thing, and it's the duty or honor of kings to search out a matter." Rabbi Cordovaro in the 16th century, records that the secrets of the Torah, that's the Hebrew term for the five books of Moses, are revealed in the skipping of letters. There are lots of hidden messages in the Scriptures, but we're going to just focus on one, called the equidistant letter sequence. What on earth is an equidistant letter sequence? Well, let me give you a contrived example here to get the idea across. Rips is one of the scientists in this area, by the way. But anyway, Rips explained that each code is a case of adding every fourth letter to form a word. Now, in this particular contrived example, if you take every fourth letter, an R, an E, an A, a D, a T, H, E, C, O, D, E, It spells a message itself. It says, read the code. Now, in this case, it's just a simple contrivance, but to get across the idea that you can have a message embedded in another message that is hidden. It has to be found by knowing what spacing to use and so forth. Now, with a computer, that's easily, you can try all spacing to see if there's a message there to see if something's going, and that's exactly what they've done. I want to share with you a discovery, or I should say a rediscovery, by Rabbi Weismandel who was between World War I and World War II. He made some discoveries in his study of the Hebrew text, which is a rediscovery of things that the ancient rabbis knew long before. He he noticed some footnotes and some ancient documents. He looked at, chased them down, and discovered something interesting. This is the book of Genesis, the opening passages of the Bible. Now realize that the Hebrew goes from right to left. We would look at it as going backwards. You should understand that all languages flow towards Jerusalem. Countries that are west of Jerusalem go from left to right. Greek, English, German, Russian, whatever. Countries that are east of Jerusalem go from right to left. Hebrew, Arabic, Sanskrit, and others. But the main point is, uh, I don't know what you do with that piece of information. I just throw out because I think it's colorful. But the word for Torah, the Torah, the law, in Hebrew, it's four letters. One letter is equivalent to R-T-O-R-H. If you go to the first Tau, which is like their T, and then count 49 letters, you come to a Vav, which operates sort of like an O, and then you count 49 letters, and again, you get a Resh, and then you count 49 letters again, and you get a He. That's a Tau, Vav, Resh, and He which is equivalent to our spelling it T-O-R-H, that English transliteration of that would be Torah. And again, the Hebrew goes from right to left, the English goes from left to right. Now you say, gee, that's curious. Uh, 49 letter intervals, it's, a, it's curious. You don't make much of that. It's just, a, a, many people argue, well, that's just an accident of statistics. It could have happened any of a number of ways. Okay. You go to Exodus and you discover the same thing happens. You go to the first How and then you count 49 letters, you get a Vav. Count 49 letters, you get a Resh. Then you get 49 letters, and you get a He. And again, it spells Torah. And you say, well, that's really a little more than coincidence, because it obviously seems to be designed. It happens again in Exodus. The chances of those happening by chance start to become astronomically ridiculous. You go to Leviticus, and you're sort of relieved when it doesn't happen at all. But you go to Numbers, something even stranger happens. You go, you find a he, a resh, a vav, and a te. You find Torah spelled backwards. <laughs> I don't know how they discovered this. It sounds like they had time on their hands, but the point is, again, we have 49 letter intervals spelling out Torah, but backwards this time. And you go to the next book, Deuteronomy, you have essentially the same thing again occur with 49 letter intervals. Well, so you stand back from all of this and say, that's kind of strange forward and forward and then Leviticus. Let's take a look at Leviticus a little more closely. And we notice not 49, which is seven squared, but seven letters. We find a, at intervals of seven. We have a Yot, a He, a Vav, and a He. And the Yot, He, Vav, He is the unpronounceable name of God in the Jewish community. And now you stand back from this whole design. You've got Genesis and Exodus and going forward and Numbers and Deuteronomy Going backwards, and you discover that the Torah always points to Yahweh or Yehovah or Yadveh Vavheh is the way some rabbis would deal with that. Interesting. Now the question is: is this all happened by accident? Hardly. Is this evidence of design? Yes. What does it prove? I'm not sure. But there's so many of these things that are so profound that increasingly they come to be regarded as authentication. You try to dra- draft some text with these kinds of properties, you'll discover it's getting, get, it's not near impossible. It's, it's much more difficult than it looks to contrive these things. Let me shift to another, since we're talking about information science in effect here. I want to uh, acquaint you with another parallel that's rather provocative. There is a thing called holography. It's a form of lensless photography. If we take a, a three-dimensional image, Uh, arrange a photographic plate in such a way that a laser illuminates that plate, and that same laser illuminates the three-dimensional object, so that what the plate records, there's no lenses here, in the sense that it's not like a camera here, that that plate will record the interference between the direct light and the reflected light. And what gets on the plate is something that when you develop the, the film, looks like a darkroom mistake. It's a cloudy, indistinct. It looks like something you throw in the wastebasket. It looks like a mistake. Yet, if you illuminate that developed plate by the laser that created it in the first place, you get a three-dimensional window into the space that was in front of it. We call the image on there a Fourier transform. It happens to be mathematically a Fourier transform of the image. It has some very peculiar properties that you'd be, I think you might be interested in. If we take that plate, it's as if, if we have a some objects out there, no matter how you look through that window, it's as if you're looking into that three-dimensional space. Let me give you an example. I have a tie on. Let's assume it's a tie with a distinct design of some kind. If I held my Bible up and you took a photograph of me, you couldn't tell what kind of a tie I'm wearing. If you took a holograph of me, you could move your eye and look around my Bible and see my tie. In other words, you've captured in the hologram a three-dimensional space, not just a two-dimensional representation of a three-dimensional space. That's what makes the hologram rather provocative it, for many reasons. But it's a Fourier transform. First of all, it requires proper illumination. It's useless in natural light. It has no form or commonness that you, you would desire it. The information that it contains is spread over the entire surface. It's not like a photograph where I could cut a part of that photograph out. If I had a photograph of three people, I could cut one of the people out and give you two of them. If it was a hologram, you could look around the hole and see all three. See, the information, all the information is spread over the entire surface. There's no loss from dropouts. In other words, there's, if you cut it, or if I cut two holograms, give you both of them. You both have a complete copy. It may not be as sharp as the earlier one. So it's resilient to specific interference. It's as if it anticipates hostile jamming. Now what's interesting, the Bible is like a hologram. It has some Fourier transform properties. It is transcendent of parallax and some other things. Have you ever noticed in the Bible that there's no chapter on baptism? There's no chapter on salvation? Every truth of God is spread through the whole book. And that has a property that if you're a communications engineer engineer designing a communication system in anticipation of hostile jamming, one of the things you do is spread your message over the entire spectrum. That is exactly the way the Bible is designed. There's a number of uh, interesting parallels between the properties of light and the attributes of God. The light we're talking about is laser light. It has no parallax. And it's as if it's located at infinity. Its velocity is constant, which is suggestive of a constant source of power. The photons lack locality. All photons are immediately connected with all other photons in the universe. That sounds bizarre, but they've just recently discovered that. It's it's astonishing. And, of course, light is primary means of revealing other things. And those those are mathematically equivalent to the primary attributes of God, as if he, He's infinite, infinite power, omnipresent, and omniscient. So you can play with that a little bit. But it's interesting that these things are intentional. We find even in James, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness nor shadow of turning. That word variableness in the Greek is parallaxis which is the term from which we get parallax, or implying the collimation that the lasers have. So, just as a hologram needs to be illuminated with the light that created it, it's useless in natural light. Uh, The information is spread over the entire bandwidth. There's no loss from dropouts. It's resilient to specific interference. That's also true of the Bible. In natural light, it looks like a collection of myths and folklore. When it's illuminated by the Holy Spirit, it gives you an image, the image of the One that we have to do, Jesus Christ. Incidentally, if you illuminate the hologram with a laser of a different frequency, you get a false image. And if you illuminate this with the wrong light, you'll get a false image there too. The information is spread over the entire Bible. It's designed that way. And as if it anticipates hostile jamming. That's exactly what Isaiah says in Isaiah 28. By the word of the Lord was unto them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, and so forth. It's deliberately spread. Well, I've just touched on some of these things. You may find that interesting. It's not critical, but I thought it's provocative to those of you that have an interest in those things. We've talked a little bit about the nature of reality, the nature of time. We put a little insert there about the nature of software. We'll be talking more about that later. We've talked a little bit about hyperspaces, because that's what we're going to find ourselves dealing with as we get into the, the Scripture. We talked a little bit about the fact there are some hidden codes. I will show you some astonishing ones as we go through. Not to get in the details, but to give you a respect for the total package. The hidden codes are not to establish doctrine. They're simply there, as, among other things, for, as a means of authentication. And, of course, I talked a little bit about the holographic model. But now let's talk about an overview of where we're headed. The Old Testament, of course, is the story, basically, of a nation. To set the stage for the New Testament, which is the story of a person, the person of Jesus Christ. And the Old Testament, I want you to understand something very important that most people don't understand. The Old Testament is incomplete. The Old Testament is full of unexplained ceremonies, sacrificial rituals that in and of themselves would seem to make no sense at all. It is full of unachieved purposes, the covenants and so forth, many of which are yet to be fulfilled. The whole challenge in the Middle East today, is the world's attempt to disavow the Abrahamic Covenant. We'll talk about that when we get there. The Old Testament is full of unappeased longings. The poetical books are full of these. It's just an example. And, of course, it's also, perhaps of paramount importance, It is full of unfulfilled prophecies. And those are, we're going to be looking at those in some detail. These are all explained for you in John chapter 5 verse 39 where Jesus Himself challenges you. He says, search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. They are they which testify of me. And one of the secrets we're going to share with you is what do you do with the... How many of you have read the Bible and found something that made no sense? Found something that seemed to contradict itself? Something that just was not understandable. How many of you have done that? Anyone that doesn't have their hand raised up has not been (laughs) studying their Bible seriously. The next time you find something in the scripture that you don't understand, I want you to rejoice because you have an opportunity to conduct a laboratory experiment in the supernatural. I want you to get a journal. Go get a journal. Your girls know what I'm talking about. The men have no idea. You go to a stationery store, you can buy bound books that are blank. And it's called a journal. And what I want you to do is get one and vow that no one will ever see it but yourself. And I say that so you'll be honest with yourself. No one's ever going to see this thing. It's your own private treasure. It will be when you're finished here. The next time you come across a passage that you don't understand, enter it in your journal. Put the date down. Put the reference down. And try to describe, in your own words, in ink, not in pencil, (laughs) why it's puzzling. Why it doesn't seem to make sense to you. Once you've done that, I want you to go to prayer, go before your Father, and remind Him that He promised that the Holy Spirit would teach you all things, not most things, all things. Lay claim on that promise and say, here's a passage in your word, Father, I, I don't understand, and I commit it to you to illuminate my confusion. Commit it in the Lord Jesus Christ in your own way. Now it won't happen necessarily in the next 10 seconds, but I'll tell you what will happen. Something will cross your path that will make that clear. It might be a sermon you hear that Sunday. It might be something you happen to read. It might be a conversation you overhear in a restaurant. Uh, It might be something you hear on a radio broadcast while randomly tuning. I have no idea what will happen, but what will happen is something will come across your path that will make that passage that confused you clear. I want you to go back to your journal, enter the date document what it means and you say, Chuck, that sounds exciting, but uh, why all the paperwork? I'll tell you why. Because the days will come when you'll traverse the valley of doubts. There'll be times when you'll just go through a valley of despair. I want you to be able to pick up that journal and recount the footprints of the Holy Spirit as He taught you the Scripture. Not Chuck Missler or whoever your favorite Bible teacher might be, but the Holy Spirit, and that will become a treasure that will be unique to you, that that won't make sense to anybody else, but it will be very important to you. Every time you find a passage in the Scripture that you don't understand, I will predict that it will unravel to you, and when it does, it'll always involve some aspect of the person of Jesus Christ. His role, his mission, his accomplishments, his destiny, uh, some aspect. If you have a a, a troubling area, put Christ right in the middle of it and watch what happens. And we'll show you examples of that as we go through the study. Well, let's take a look at where we're headed. The Old Testament, of course, consists of the Torah. Some people would call it, under the Greek, the Pentateuch. The, The Jews would call it the Torah. The five books of Moses, the first five, most venerated part of the Old Testament to the Jewish community. It's followed by 12 historical books which really chronicle the history of Israel. Then the literature of Israel, the poetical books, the Psalms, the Proverbs, and others. Five of those. Then we have 17 books called the Prophets. Writings that were inspired by God that talk about the future, God's plan in overview. It happens that five of those are large ones. That's why they're called major prophets. 12 of them are called Minor Prophets, but that's misleading. That's a librarian's designation. It has nothing to do with content. Some of those priceless little gems are when the so-called Minor Prophets. But in any case, we have 17 books, uh, Prophets, which add up to a total of 39 books making up the Old Testament. And of course, the Torah is where we're starting. The book of Genesis literally means the book of beginnings. Then the book of Exodus, which deals with the birth of the nation Israel. That's where it begins as a nation. The law of that nation is codified in a book called Leviticus. They wander in the wilderness for virtually 40 years, called the wilderness wanderings, before they enter the land. Deuteronomy is the last three sermons by Moses, in which he reviews the laws and gives them guidance because he passes the baton to Joshua as they enter the land. So that closes the Torah. And the book of Joshua, of course, follows because Joshua is the successor and it handles the conquest of the land of Canaan. And, of course, in the next session, we will undertake a beginning of the book of Genesis. We're going to devote a substantial portion of time to Genesis and also to Revelation, both ends, because everything starts, everything in the Bible that has a beginning begins in Genesis and has its climax in Revelation. There, the book ends to the whole thing. book of Genesis, of course, covers all the way to up to the Exodus. But we'll be focusing next time on the creation and the predicament of mankind and how that all started. In the next hour, we'll take the first three chapters, the creation itself and the fall of man. Then we'll finish what they call prehistory. We often regard the first 11 chapters of Genesis as sort of prehistory, as it's called by some scholars. The flood and the Tower of Babel and all that. And then we'll spend an hour on the patriarchs, the rest of the book of Genesis. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, and why they are important to every one of us today. This is not just a question of Jewish history. It's a question of really understanding what God is doing and how He's doing it. We just hope you really enjoy this adventure. I predict that it'll be the most challenging thing that you've ever undertaken and the most rewarding, most exciting thing you've ever done. So go at it prayerfully. And we'll see you next time.
1: You've been listening to Dr. Chuck Missler, teaching through his series entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, here on 6640. If you would like further information about materials available from Dr. Missler, please contact us through this station, or visit our website at khouse.org. Until next time, when Dr. Missler continues this series, May God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.